Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Israel 2018, where Dr. Newfeld describes for us some of the meaningful occasions and opportunities and locations that we visited while in Israel. Today, we're hearing a message called Jesus in Jerusalem. I've been asked to do the impossible. Highlight an Israel experience in audio. <laughs> Think about it, it's kind of crazy. But not only that, but, but I've done it before. This is actually version 2.0. You know, as I thought about what I should do, I mean, several thoughts do come to mind. One was the idea of a running commentary of a number of places in Israel explaining their biblical significance. And yeah, I'm doing that, but it's really not my main focus. You know, another is simply tracing the ministry of Jesus through chronologically and relating that to the physical geography of Israel, but that's extremely difficult to do in an audio format. And the third idea, the one I'm actually settled on, is to speak of several locations and the spiritual lesson that we learn at each place. The first location for me were at the caves of Qumran, where we learned that our Bible really can be trusted. The second is both the ruins of Caesarea, which give us the historical background to the ministry of Jesus, and then in the tiny fishing village of Capernaum, where Jesus began the greatest ministry the earth has ever seen. And today I want to take you to Jerusalem, the only place on earth that is called the city of the great king. See, all Christians know that Jerusalem is central to any discussion of faith. I remember the first time I visited Jerusalem, one man on the bus, a guy I thought I was going to strangle, well, he kept asking of everything that we saw, well, was this before or after the flood? I mean, I had unholy thoughts of drowning him in memory of the story of the flood. But instead, I remembered that I was to love even the irritating among us. And so I painstakingly tried to remind him over and over again that everything we saw happened after the flood. And then when we got to Jerusalem, he finally had a new question. Why is Jerusalem important at all? And I was about to roll my eyes one more time when I thought, well, just perhaps, well, maybe he has a point. Perhaps we need to explain why it is that we think that Jerusalem is the most important place on earth. Or really, I mean, why Jerusalem? I mean, why not Rome or Beijing or Washington or some other place that, that captures the attention of the earth? See, unlike a great many cities of the world, Jerusalem is not located next to an ocean, a major waterway, or for that matter, even a major world trade route. It does not sit on top of a reserve of minerals or oil or, or some vast source of wealth. You know, in many ways, it's situated in one of the most unlikely places we would ever expect to find one of the world's great cities. And yet, this city has been completely destroyed twice besieged 23 times, captured and recaptured at least 44 times, and has been the center of countless wars and battles in human history. This place is prized and desired by many and will continue to capture the earth's attention unlike any other place on earth. And why is that? And if the name Jerusalem means city of peace, it seems anything but anything like a city of peace. Today, it remains a divided city. And yet, According to the Bible, when you get to Jerusalem, you get to the very place where God will forever establish his kingdom, creating a new Jerusalem that will come out of heaven from God, the place where every tear will forever be wiped away, where death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. But instead of looking forward, let's look back. According to the book of Genesis, chapter 14, 
4,000 years ago, Lot, the nephew of Abraham, had just been taken a prisoner because of a battle in that region. And Abraham, in a daring raid with only 318 men, attacked those victorious kings. He utterly routed them. He recaptures his nephew Lot, and then he brings Lot back home safely. Then the king of Salem, that is, the king of Jerusalem, comes out to meet Abraham and brings him bread and wine and blesses Abraham. Now, this king of Salem, or the king of Jerusalem, is called the priest of the Most High God. And later in the New Testament, we learn that this priest was a prototype or an image of Jesus himself. But several chapters later in Genesis 22, we hear of Salem again, but this time only as a veiled reference. All of us remember Mount Moriah, the place mentioned in Genesis 22, where Abraham bound his son Isaac to an altar and the place where God intervened and told him not to lay a hand on the boy. God had provided a ram to be slain as a substitute for the boy. Genesis 22 verse 14 then tells us what happened next. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. See, that mount, Mount Moriah, were the hills that would have overlooked Melchizedek's ancient city of Salem. It would have been just above the city. You could have thrown a stone from where Abraham stood to sacrifice Isaac, and it would have hit Salem. 1,000 years later, on that very hill where Abraham meant to sacrifice Isaac, but God intervened and provided a ram, according to 1 Chronicles 21, David had sinned. And in response, God sends a plague, and in three days, 70,000 in Israel die. Then God sends the angel of death to Jerusalem to destroy it, And David sees the angel of death standing on that same hill, Mount Moriah, where so long ago Abraham had bound his son to the altar. You know, at the time of David, the hill belonged to a man named Ornan the Jebusite, who had a threshing floor on that very place. Well, David bought the hill from Ornan the Jebusite, and on that very hill, he sacrificed animals as burnt offerings for his sin. The plague was stopped. I mean, think of the importance of that hill on the very place that God provided a ram so that Isaac's life would be spared. This was also the place where animals were sacrificed and countless people in Jerusalem were spared. And one generation later, according to 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, we're told, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So, on the spot where Abraham bound Isaac to the altar and God had provided a ram, to the place where David sacrificed to stop a plague, on that very place, Solomon built a temple so that on that very place, sacrifice and offerings might be made. Of course, 1,000 years later, as thousands of lambs were being sacrificed at Passover on that place, Jesus himself came up to that hill, to the temple, drives out the money changers, Then in a meeting late into the night in that very temple, Jesus is standing before the Jewish religious leaders, and there in that very place, they made a decision to bind Jesus, the Son of God, and deliver him up to be sacrificed. Where Isaac was unbound, Jesus was bound to be sacrificed. Yes, where else would the ultimate sacrifice be made but in the vicinity of that very place? But as has been my custom and my enthusiasm, I'm getting way ahead of myself. 
I mean, I should have gone back to where I last left off 4,000 years ago with a man named Melchizedek, both a king and a priest of the one true living God, ministering from that place called Salem or Shalom. He goes out to Abraham and blesses him. And the Bible says he was the king of Salem, but he's also priest of God Most High. The king of Salem was God's man at that time to represent him as a priest. And the Bible mentions no more of the city until Joshua enters into the land 600 years after Abraham. And there we get a picture of the city. According to Joshua 15 verse 63, we're told, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. That is, to the day of the end of the writing of the book of Joshua. That was because of the hills the city was built on. It's extremely difficult to defeat. And so for the next 400 years, the people of God are in their promised land, but the Jebusites and not the Jews continue to hold on to their defensible city. And then everything changed. Samuel the prophet had anointed David as king of Israel. And then after David becomes king, 2 Samuel 5 verses 6 and 7 records the following. It says, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Jerusalem was so well defended, the Jebusites mocked David's men from the wall. If all we had in this city, they said, were blind and lame people, they could hold you back. Again, I'm tempted to fast forward to the time of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus did many miracles in Jerusalem, but only two miracles are recorded? The first is in John 5, where he heals a paralyzed man. And the second is in John 9, where he heals a man who was born blind from birth. Do you understand? Whereas the Jebusites told David, we're so well defended here that even the blind and the lame can keep the king of Israel out of this city. The greatest king of all entered into that city, and he healed the blind and the lame there. David, in effect, conquered the blind and the lame, but Jesus, well, he conquered blindness and lameness. His was a greater victory. This coming November 2nd to the 4th, Join the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada for its 60th anniversary celebration events in Winkler, Manitoba. The weekend will include an evening with Dr. John Newfeld, a fun-filled event filled with laughter and encouragement with Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway, and a very special Sunday evening young adult celebration featuring In Doubt live and in concert. Musical guests throughout the weekend will include Manitoba's own Amanda Stott, award-winning worship artist Andrew Marcus, as well as musical guests Jordan St. Cyr and Scribe. For information about all three events, check out backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We're looking so forward to joining with you for these celebration events in Winkler, Manitoba, this November 2nd to the 4th. Remember, all the information you can get is available at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Let's get back to David. After the taunt that the city was so well defended that the blind and the lame could defend Jerusalem from David, well, all that the Bible says is, nevertheless, 
David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft and attack the lame and the blind. Well, archaeologists have discovered a water shaft that comes up from near a spring that if you visit Jerusalem, you can, as I have done, walk up that water shaft into the city of Jerusalem. See, according to the Bible, Joab led that attack up the water shaft and consequently became David's commander. And thereafter, David established his headquarters in Jerusalem. He brought the ark of God there and he established the tabernacle there and later, As we've learned, Solomon built a temple on the spot where Abraham had bound Isaac to the altar. And most thought this to be a fulfillment of the words that were given in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices." And most of us remember the conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at the well, the well of Sychar. It's recorded in John 4. See, at one point in time in that conversation, the woman said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she was referring to an ancient dispute. Mount Gerizim was located right outside of Shechem. It's a city that's now called Nabalus. And in the time of Joshua, according to the command of Moses, he had half of the tribe stand on Mount Gerizim and the other half on Mount Ebal to pronounce the blessings and the curses. So Mount Ebal was the mountain of curses and Gerizim was the mountain of blessing. So the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim and they believed it was a fulfillment of the promise of Deuteronomy. But Jesus told a woman, salvation is of the Jews, meaning that the place where salvation would come would be Jerusalem the place where Abraham bound Isaac to the altar. But let's get back to the telling of the history of Jerusalem. Solomon began to build a temple in 967 BC, and it was completed seven years later. The year would have been 960 BC. And it became the center of worship until the year 586 BC, when it was destroyed by the Babylonians, that is, 384 years later. The Bible tells us that this was the hand of God destroying the temple for the idolatry that had been practiced there. Jeremiah and the other prophets had warned them time and time again, but Judah would not listen. And so the Babylonians entered Jerusalem in 586 BC, and they slaughtered any who resisted them, and they took many slaves into Babylon. And Jeremiah describes it this way, and I'm reading Lamentations 1 verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. And Psalm 137 verse 1 tells of the experience of the exiles. By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion or Jerusalem. But Daniel, one of the exiles, was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, and he read that the exile would only last 70 years. And the book of Ezra begins in this way in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And then a band of Jews journey back to their historic city, Jerusalem. Well, both Ezra and Nehemiah record the tumultuous events that allowed the Jews to rebuild not only their ruined city, but to rebuild their destroyed temple. 
And at first, the building seemed so small and inconsequential. The very old men who could remember the former temple in its glory wept when they saw the foundation of the new temple, for it looked so small. But the young people shouted for joy, and so there was this strange weeping and shouting at the same time. But God was raising up prophets to speak about the significance of that second temple. And no more significant statement could be made than that which was made by Malachi in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see, more than 400 years later, Jerusalem had been rebuilt, and the temple was greatly enhanced and beautified by none other than Herod the Great, yeah, the same man who butchered the boys of Bethlehem. And on that Passion Week, as Jesus rode to the temple in fulfillment of the hopes of Malachi and others, the disciples were heard to announce, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And when Jesus came to Jerusalem, his coming was the most significant coming the city had ever seen. Yep. It did come to fulfill what Abraham's ram in the thicket could not, and what David's sacrifice on the hill could not, and what Solomon's rivers of sacrifices could never do. Jesus came, and by his one sacrifice, he would end the sacrifice and offerings for all time. For the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. But by his one perfect offering, he dealt with the sins of all who put their hope in him. But there's another aspect of the coming of Christ into Jerusalem that is sometimes missed. Let's go back to Malachi's announcement. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to this temple, said Malachi. Malachi asks the question, But who can endure in the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, says Malachi. Let's contrast that statement with the one Luke records in Luke 19, 41-44. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so after Jerusalem rejected her king and crucified him on a cross, The days did come, an event the Jewish historian Josephus would call the War of the Jews. In A.D. 70, the Second Temple was also burned to the ground. The Roman troops surrounded the city, set it on fire, and the Jewish people were driven from their land, and Jerusalem was destroyed for a second time in history. And if you visit Jerusalem today, in one way you're witnessing the miracle of Israel coming back to the Promised Land. Banished in A.D. 70 and returning in 1948, it's a remarkable story of the return of the chosen people after almost 2,000 years. And when you go to Jerusalem and see the walls, you should know that the city that you now see, well, it's different than the time of Jesus. The city was burned to the ground. The walls you now see were built by the Muslim conqueror called Suleiman the Magnificent in about 1537. And Mount Moriah, the place where the temple once stood, now houses a mosque, now called the Dome of the Rock, built in 691. Now, if that sounds difficult for some to digest, well, 
Remember that Christ's death ended the need for sacrifice. And remember that God, in his sovereignty, has not permitted a third temple to be rebuilt, at least not yet. That mosque assures us that no temple will be rebuilt until Jesus' words all come true. And so whether we're looking forward to the new Jerusalem, the hope of heaven, or looking backward at the history of Jerusalem and the story of the heart of our faith, that city is the center of our affections. Psalm 48 is a psalm of instruction for anyone making a trip to Jerusalem. Verses 12 to 14 says, Walk about Zion, go around her and number her towers. Consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. But that psalm, Psalm 48, begins in this fashion. And I'm reading verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. You know, for myself personally, every time I go there, I find tears welling up in my eyes. I say to myself, John, you're you're standing at ground zero, the very place where God has shown his mercy to the human race through Jesus Christ our Lord, and the very place where all of history will be consummated. There is no place in all the earth like this place, Jerusalem, the city of our God. You know, John, one of the experiences we all enjoy so much and is just so meaningful is when we start going to Jerusalem or going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Of course, we're going in a bus, but we're going up to Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden we see Jerusalem. There's this incredible feeling. There's just this incredible time of worship that we have together in the bus. What is that all about? What is it about for you? Yeah, I know that every time I've been there, Ben, and I think probably you too, that bus goes through a tunnel. And then when it gets through the tunnel, and the minute you're on the other side, boom, there it is. And everyone just goes, ah, for the first time, because it's just, there it is. I mean, all my life I've told, I've been taught that I'm marching to Zion, you know, and this is the symbol of the, the city of God that will come down out of heaven, that will be eternal. This is the center of the earth. And and it's just not uncommon to have all sorts of people, just tears running down their cheeks, um, saying, you know, this is indeed everything I have you know, been dreaming about seeing, and, and it's the fruition of that. It's a wonderful time. Yeah. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue this series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. April 28, 2019, Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and guests will be headed out for our third Israel experience. Each of the last two reminded us of the spiritual impact a journey to the Holy Land has upon the follower of Jesus. Walk where Jesus walked, stand where Moses, Abraham, Jacob encountered their God. Spend time in worship and reflect upon the stories of Scripture with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld and visit incredible sites such as the Garden Tomb, the Mount of Beatitudes, and the Sea of Galilee. This is a trip of a lifetime and we want to share it with you. For more information or to register, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com. 
www.spacesimited.ca. Remember, space is limited, so register today and join us for the 2019 Israel Experience. And please remember, all costs associated with Back to the Bible Canada tours or events are paid for by the participant.